Goddag og velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler, der sætter verden sammen. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Jeg har i denne her uge talt med Andreas Malm. Han er professor i humanøkologi ved Universitetet i Lund. Han er forfatter til adskillige bøger, som er blevet anmeldt og læst i hele den vestlige verden. Han er forhenværende klimaaktivist, og så er han en af dem, der sætter spørgsmålet på spidsen. Når politik, som vi kender det, ikke slår til i forhold til klimakrisen, som vil præge de næste generationers livsbetingelser her på jorden, hvad stiller vi så op? I How to Blow Over Pipeline, som er den bog, der er afsæt for vores samtale i dag, der siger Andreas Malm, hvis det er sådan, at politik, som vi kender det, bidrager til en ødelæggelse, som vil præge livsvilkårene på jorden de næste mange årtier, og som vil skabe dårligere livsomstændigheder for vores børn og børnebørn. Kan vi så vente på, at politik, som vi kender det, vil løse problemet? Eller skal vi tænke alternativt? Skal vi spørge, er det nu, at man skal vælge nogle symbolske mål for sabotagehandlinger? Andreas Malm går ikke ind for vold mod mennesker. Han går ikke ind for en aktivisme, der skaber skade på menneskeliv. Men han stiller spørgsmålet, når det nu går så langsomt, at det er alt for langsomt, og vi efterhånden er ved at være desperate, fordi konsekvenserne af, at det går så langsomt, er uforsvarlige for os selv. Hvad er så det næste skridt for en klimaaktivist, der vil tage ansvaret for den situation, vi er i i dag? Det er de spørgsmål, som min samtale med Andreas Malm kredser omkring, både om det er moralsk forsvarligt og om det er politisk effektivt. God fornøjelse. Good evening and welcome to our viewers here in Copenhagen and in Denmark and in Sweden, if we have any in Sweden. And especially good evening and welcome to Andreas Malm, who is with us from Lund. Good evening, Rune. It's an honor to be with you. Uh, my first question, Andreas, is that uh, you're an academic today. You've also been a journalist. I tend to think that's why you you write so much and why you 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 you, you get it done. But you also have a history of activism. And, and how did you originally become involved in climate activism? Well, as I describe in the, the opening pages of this particular book, uh, How to Blow the Pipeline, I happened to jump on a bus together with some friends in uh, April 1995 and uh, go to COP1 in Berlin. So the very first COP summit. And uh, I attended and participated in the um, sort of counter summit, which was uh, quite small in size, about 500 people. And now in Glasgow, it was more than 100,000 people. So some things have changed at least. Uh, That was my first experience with climate activism. Then I had a a long hiatus. I didn't get properly involved in uh, sustained climate activism until around 2006. Uh, And I was very active in the run up to uh, Uh, COP15 in Copenhagen. Um, nowadays, I'm not really, rarely at least, an, an organizer. I try to participate in actions and climate camps and demonstrations when I can. Uh, I do a little bit of organizing, but not too much, I have to admit. We, we like to think here at the newspaper that we are kind of a link between grassroots movements and those in power. So we make sure that those in power see the potential and maybe the threats of grassroots movements. And, and we also try to make grassroots movement realize what they're up against and what are the reigning reasoning and 
and, and, and legitimacies. How do you, ha having worked as a journalist, having been an activist and, and, and now working as an academic, how do you see the link between these different fields of action? Yeah, I think <laughs> um, climate activism in the current historical moment has to relate to governments and states that exist. And that's because of the balance of forces in society. We're not in a situation uh, as a little bit more than 100 years ago where, where we could imagine that we as activists are going to replace the existing state completely and be the new state, so to speak. Rather, we can raise demands such as no more new pipelines or close down the existing coal mines and things like that and try to force these demands upon the existing state. That, of course, requires some kind of interface or interaction between uh, extra parliamentary forces and those who actually exercise power and, and make policy. Uh, I, I myself have never been really interested in working from inside institutions. Uh, that's not in line with my political temperament, so to speak, but, but uh, we, we can't as activists imagine that we on our own are going to make the, the necessary decisions. It's about building, amassing a social force to try to shift the balance of, of forces and, and push the state to take necessary steps, if that makes sense. Oh, definitely. So it's always about provoking some action on from others and also pushing yeah. the balance of, of, uh, of forces, not something that we can achieve ourselves, so to speak. Yeah. With this newspaper, we've been discussing this. Uh, we've been discussing a lot this year because it's 50 years since uh, Limits to Growth came out. I think that will be in in June or, or or July. So we've been looking back over the last decades of activism and trying to see what has been, what are the successes and what are the failures. Because I think we're in a, I think we're in dark times. It's a very very difficult situation, and it's impossible to be an optimist. You can't be hopeful, but not a, but not a, not, not an optimist. Uh, and when we look back, you can definitely see some victories, but it seems to me that everything that's about redistribution of power has failed. Uh, yeah. That you, you can have some gains when it comes to changing corporate policies or getting rid of acid rain, stuff like that. How do you see, how do you see the history of, of climate activism, the failures and the successes? Yeah, I think it's clear that there have been local victories, as in uh, rather small-scale triumphs, um, where we've managed to wrong uh, to wring concessions from uh, from states. I mean, everything from first Obama to now Biden cancelling the Keystone XL pipeline, to uh, uh, Germany at least starting to discuss uh, uh, phasing out coal and setting a date for it, although that date is completely inadequate. Denmark uh, saying that we're not going to hand out any more licenses for drilling in the North Sea. These are like small scale victories, often completely insufficient, uh, but they show that it's possible to make some difference. There was a very interesting um, article that was published in one of the climate science journals recently that had mapped uh, 600 cases of what they called place-based resistance against fossil fuel projects around the world. And in 20% of the cases where there was such resistance, these projects, a pipeline or a coal mine or a refinery or whatever, have been canceled. That's obviously not enough. The success rate should be 100%, but it shows you that if you fight, you can win. 
Now, uh, <laughs> these victories have been very important for the movement in sustaining energy and momentum, but they have not so far dented the aggregate curves. So we are still very, very far from uh, flattening, let alone reducing and abolishing CO2 emissions. I mean, just look at what's going on right now in Europe, where you have all of these empty airplanes flying back and forth to maintain slots in airports. I mean, just the most insane form of spewing out CO2 emissions in planes when no one is sitting on these planes. I mean, can you consider anything more irrational? And if we can't even get our states to stop that, then we're clearly very, very far from the goal. Uh, so we need to do something more, I think. We need to think about the next step. And I, I don't take credit for having made this argument because it's something that is very much in the air in the movement that there needs to be some kind of an escalation. What exactly this entails is, of course, of course very controversial. But precisely because the situation is so dire and what we've achieved so far is good, but so far from enough, we need to take the next step. Yeah, and I think there's a big discussion here whether we're as uh, Michael E. Mann that I spoke to a couple of months ago, he was saying, well, actually, there's uh, a momentum to be lost here. He says that, that he's very optimistic, not very optimistic, but he's hopeful about the prospect of what of what we can achieve collectively over the next 10 years. Of course, we must accelerate reductions and we must, we must also redistribute power, but he believes that it can be actually achieved within the existing, existing yeah. institutions. On the other hand, I spoke to David Runciman who said, well, we're just miserably failing that, that we haven't invented policies that can really address this question, that basically we are playing chess just next to, next to the disaster. And we are mm -hmm. seeing it unfold and keep in mind that what we are seeing unfold here in you know, the drafts in Sweden or the floods in Denmark, they're just small scale as uh, compared to what you see in Madagascar, what you see oh, in yeah, Kenya yeah. and what you see in, 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 in the global South. I think I personally agree with Bill McKibben who you mentioned in the book and that yeah. we will turn to assist that we're winning so slowly that it's a sure method of losing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, how, how do you see where we are today? Well, I, 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 I find it difficult to square Michael Mann's optimism with what I read about the trends. Uh, you know, um, all the major fossil fuel producers are planning for a massive expansion of fossil fuel extraction in the years and decades ahead, ahead when, when what is needed is a plunge towards, towards zero. Uh, there's been much talk lately of coal nearing its end, but China is ramping up its coal production, and the, the expansion of coal is proceeding apace in, uh, uh, in much of Asia. Australia, the world's largest coal exporter, is doubling down on coal as the foundation for its economy uh, and, and gas as well. And I mean, I could go on. We could just look at our wonderful neighbor, Norway, which very recently inaugurated Johan uh, Sverdrup, which will next year, no, this year, become the single largest oil field in Europe. And that is supposed to run into the 2070s. And Norway just keeps on expanding this, even with a new, with a new government. I, I don't really see how Michael Mann can be so sanguine about where we are going. Uh, I share his, his view that it's possible 
to undertake a transition from fossil fuels to renewables. It's technically feasible. It's not happening. Instead, the, the big fossil fuel corporations, they, they've, it's still so much more profitable for them to keep investing in oil and gas than to invest in renewables. So uh, that Shell and Total and Exxon and all of these giants uh, are, are just continuing to pour their money into fossil fuels. And I don't see that we have any policy for breaking that trend yet. I mean, you could, you could, it's very easy. You could nationalize those companies, take them over and tell them to close fossil fuel production and switch to something else completely. But I mean, um, ask Macron if he's ready to nationalize Total, the single largest oil company in, uh, sorry, the single largest private company of any kind in France. He, he's not going to want to do it, nor is any other presidential candidate. I agree with you that we keep not only do we see these expansions, we also see massive public subsidies for these yeah, uh, for, exactly. for these. And it's not a coincidence that they had the biggest delegation at the COP26 yeah. uh, just, just, that just recently re recent, recently passed. And when I talk to people in America, they usually say uh, that, like Bernie would say, that it's the fossil fuel industry. So mm. they would blame it on the big corporations. Mm. And, and they would uh, point out how they've been lied to, how they kept the truth away. Mm. When I look at our own history here in Denmark over the last, mm. I mean, at least since the Rio summit three decades ago. And I think when James Hansen came to Congress in late eighties, there's no excuse for not knowing, you know, you can't say, and there's no excuse for the Danish unions, for the Danish parties. There's no excuse for anyone not knowing. So I, I, I think I take a somewhat balanced view that it's also on the citizens, that the citizens have not been pushing adequately for it. So it's not just, a problem of capitalism, but also within democracy, as we know it. Uh, I don't know if I put it quite succinctly. Do you no, understand no, no. this dilemma? Yeah, yeah. Sure. No, I mean, it's a simplification to say that this problem is exclusively about the fossil fuel producers, the big oil and gas companies. I mean, it's an infinitely more complex problem than that. But these corporations have the most deeply entrenched interest in keeping business as usual going. And that's because their very uh, mode of existence, their whole business model is to extract fossil fuels. I mean, you can have a, a steel factory transitioning to uh, renewable sources or uh, Amazon going renewable in some respects. Uh, they, uh, they, there are at least potentials in some way for companies like that to adapt to a world after oil and gas and coal. But for the fossil fuel producers themselves, this is an existential question. They have to cease to exist. I mean, we cannot have ExxonMobil as an oil and gas company. We, I mean, since, since decades, it should have been gone long ago. Uh, so that's the uh, hardest core of the problem. And that's also where the most intransigent resistance against the transition emerges from. So I think it makes sense for the climate movement to have a focus on these corporations as a kind of central target, if you like. This is an approach much pioneered by Bill McKibben and others working with him, uh, without, of course, saying that it's, it's exclusively a question of these companies. I mean, we are all uh, enmeshed in a capitalist economy that relies on fossil fuels. And this means that we have multiple you know, entanglements with the whole problem. 
Uh, and th this has to be recognized if there's going to be any progress, of course. I think at the moment, we're also in the dilemma that we see, and th this is what one of your book is describing, how the far right is anti-climate, that we see, and, and you know, at this point, we cannot just focus on the Western societies. Like when I was growing up in the 70s, the right would always just uh, look at the Western societies that, that they we were right about everything. Le the left would also always look at the Western societies, say we caused all the damage in the world. So everything was about our own societies. And, uh, and, and right now we must look at India, we must look at Brazil, we must look at, look at all, all, all major powers in the world. And I think there's a dilemma here that you see right-wing authoritarian leaders winning and they're all against uh, fighting climate change. Like you see mm. in Brazil, mm. we've had grassroots movements for decades fighting to restore the Amazon forest and Bolsonaro, he destroyed that. So there's a question here, wh whether the climate movement, they should embrace the liberal center and make a coalition against the far right. Uh, and with that, you know, consider people like uh, Tony Blair or Hillary Clinton as as allies of this, people who are plutocrats, and then, or, or whether or whether the climate movement <coughs> should be against the, the the liberal elite as well as the far right. Uh, I know it's a difficult question, but yeah. it's something that I struggle with all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, if we look at the U.S., I think that it was clearly a positive thing that Donald Trump lost the presidential election to Joe Biden. But the illusions that some might have had about Joe Biden have been shattered. I mean, he, since he became president, has handed out permits for drilling on public land at a far higher rate than Donald Trump. And uh, his climate policy is essentially in a shambles because he uh, has not been engaged in a political project to confront fossil capital. Bernie Sanders sketched such a project, but, but Joe Biden was against it from the start and he hasn't pursued it. Now, the, uh, one of the great risks of this is that uh, Joe Biden is such a generally lousy president, I think, uh, without a real political force behind him, that the Democratic uh, uh, vote to be unable to step against the resurgent Republicans. So the sort of useless liberal uh, center that is represented in the U.S. by the Biden administration right now is not a, 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 a safeguard against far-right reaction. To the contrary, I mean, I, I was just in the U.S. recently, and I, yes, I flew, and I had conversations with American comrades in Glasgow, and the general sentiment is that the Republicans will take back uh, uh, the Congress and uh, very soon, uh, we're going to have Donald Trump in 2024 as, as the president again. And just imagine how vindictive and how, 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 how crazy he would be the second time around. Uh, I, don't, I don't see the liberal center as a safe fence against the far right. I think we need to be much more on the offensive to be able to drive back the far right. I mean, in a sense, this is what happened in the U.S. in 2020 with the Black Lives Matter movement. I mean, it was that surge of popular anger and mobilization on the street that sapped some of the power of, uh, uh, of the Trump regime, of course, with the addition of the pandemic. But this is a very intense um, 
uh, discussion. It, Bill McKibben, uh, you know, one of his arguments that that you counter in in, in your book is that that nonviolence is a, is the strength of the of the climate movement. It's definitely something that the climate movement should should hold hold on to. And of course, you also know the argument by Gene Sharp, you know, the man who influenced so many liberation movement around the around the world. And I've been I've been very sympathetic to that argument when he says that. If a resistant movement uses violence, you play the game where where the other part will always they will always prevail. But you disagree. You disagree with that argument very much. I should say based on the moment that we're in and the time time horizons. Why is it that you disagree with that? Well, our enemy is stronger to begin with. Our enemy is stronger in every respect. Whatever we fight with, media, uh, money, uh, propaganda. <laughs> yeah, nonviolence in the street where you the police and I mean everything uh, we do from a from a position of relative weakness against uh, the the dominant classes. I mean that's that's part of the struggle. So to say that there is something unique about uh, uh, collective uh, political violence and that it, uh, it it meets the enemy where it's strong. Unlike in those other areas, such as divestment or anything like that, it just doesn't strike me as convincing. And then if you look at popular movements in history, you virtually always have a component of confrontation with the guardians of the existing order, with police forces. You have riots, you have property destruction. And this is how many of the most important political battles in history have been won. And the idea that it's only when we are absolutely non-violent and peaceful that we can achieve anything, to me, just doesn't stack up to the historical evidence. And I think they have a weak case when they try to make it. Yeah, and something that I think is very interesting, because I, we always, I think, infer Martin Luther King as the, the, the example of... of uh, of, of that and his famous phrase that we should inject uh, shame into the veins of of, uh, of of Americans and refrain from violence. But actually your point in the book that he was successful because the others were violent in his era. Yeah, there. Is, I mean, this is of course uh, not uncontroversial, but there is <laughs> <laughs> Uh, a very significant um, literature about the civil rights movement that argues that without the presence of a more radical flank or threat in the form of Malcolm X, uh, the Black Panthers, the various communist black groups, and of course the urban uprisings that shook the cities, uh, the, the ghettos of the US, starting in Birmingham and then continuing all over the country, without this um, dynamo of change, you wouldn't have seen Martin Luther King and the civil rights mainstream catapulted into a position of an interlocutor of the, of the government. Uh, you know, being welcomed into the White House and uh, uh, being allowed to shape legislation and things like that. Because and what Martin Luther King and the others could say and what, what the uh, sort of white power structure perceived was that if you don't give us these concessions, you will end up having to fight these revolutionaries on the streets. And that's very often how change had come about historically. I mean, the welfare state in Scandinavia was very largely an outcome of the threat of 
of the spread of the Russian Revolution and and uh, and so on. It's uh, it's very often the threat of of more thorough social change that scares the powers that be into concessions. And 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 but you're also very clear in the book that you do not as what you call violence in the book, and that's a conceptual discussion. I would think yeah. I would say that it's what I usually refer to as sabotage. I mean, yeah, you, yeah. Uh, but that's a conceptual discussion because you're very clear that it's a kind of violence that doesn't harm any human bodies. What what kind of violence do you uh, do you think could be efficient in the climate movement? Well, I think that it would be disastrous if the climate movement now uh, started to attack individual human beings as in, I don't know, assassinating uh, fossil fuel executives or uh, <laughs> sending suicide bombers into the shell boards, board meeting or something like that. I mean, it would it would be morally wrong to begin with. And if it's also extremely destructive for the climate movement, then it would be doubly wrong. Uh, so no one should do that. I do think that if you engage in a kind of destruction of property, property that destroys the planet, property that kills people, property that is the source of our ever rising wave of misfortunes in terms of wildfires and droughts and flash floods and everything, then you can potentially uh, communicate with people and uh, receive support for doing this and inspire people to do more of that kind of action and break the, the devastating paralysis that surrounds the climate issue, the feeling that all of this fossil fuel infrastructure is a fact of nature. It's something that we just have to accept. It's, it's our fate, it's part of our life. We can't do anything about it. But if people show that, no, you can actually destroy these things. You can shut down, you can, you can take apart a digger in a lignite coal mine in Germany or a pipeline that runs through Denmark or something like that. Then you uh, very concretely break this assumption that these are you know, physical, inevit inevitable uh, features of our life. Uh, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not arguing that this would be some kind of a panacea or magical bullet, but I do think that the time has come to try these things precisely because the situation is so, so bad. I mean, People are more and more starting to discuss against solar geoengineering as an option. Are we really going to try solar geoengineering before we have tried to sabotage and destroy fossil fuel property? Is what, what is the legitimacy of going for that first? Uh, yeah. You know, there was actually a verdict in Denmark some years ago. There was done some sabotage to a pipeline in the south southern part of Sjælland, and 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 those who did it, they were convicted, but they weren't punished. Uh, be, with with reference to uh, to the climate em em emergency, so that, really, yes. So, so I didn't know about the sabotage of an oil pipeline. Huh? Yes, in, in not a, not an oil pipeline, an energy pipeline in the south of yes, yeah. of, oh, Shil yeah. uh, of of Shilland. So actually, this is not as controversial as as it as it sounds, uh, because if it's recognized, and it is in many countries that we're in a climate emergency, and you know. Mm. Even the Danish prime minister, in her New Year's speech, she would say, this is the biggest obligation of our generation. This is the biggest problem that we're, that, that we're facing. So, so I think to that extent, if it's not, and I think I agree with you that damning human lives is morally 
unjustifiable. The big problem is what kind of actions would be efficient from a from a from a, from a, from a protest, protest point of view. But I worry two things. One thing is that when I look at the history of uh, left-wing sabotage, it would require an extremely intelligent discipline that I don't see any precedent in, in, in left-wing movements, at least here in Denmark. You know, When they start to burn cars, you burn the cars of people from the working classes. So you hit the wrong people and you get if everything gets you. So it seems like everyone should be as conceptually clear as Andreas Malm to, to, uh, to, 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 to go down. You know, it seems that it requires a discipline of the movement that is very difficult when you look at the situation we're in and the history of I, I shouldn't take I shouldn't take the credit for being for having that kind of conceptual clarity. I think if if I went on on my own sort of a sabotage rampage, I would make mistakes uh, as well. Uh, we are fallible, all of us, activists included, and make mistakes. What's important is to not be committed and prestigious about one's tactical choices. So uh, open to revising and abandoning tactics that don't work. And let me just give you a recent example uh, from activists that I respect a lot and that I consider to be, of course, comrades in the climate movement, Insulate Britain in the UK, that uh, during the past autumn, methodically targeted highways in the UK with road uh, blockades. And the, these were random blockades that uh, uh, struck against commuters, very often working class people on the way to their jobs. And many of these people became extremely upset. And you had some of them on record saying, why are you targeting me? Am I responsible for the climate crisis? Why don't you go after the millionaires instead? And uh, the, the, the most immediate political effect of these actions was just an outpouring of popular rage against the climate activists, uh, activists who targeted uh, ordinary working class people on their way to the jobs. Yeah, with, with a kind of insensitivity to how working class people struggle to make uh, ends meet. But still, the activists held on to this tactic into the very bitter end when most of them were arrested and are now facing heavy repression. Uh, unfortunately, I, another error I think they made was to uh, strive to get arrested. This is part of, you know, kind of civil disobedience uh, ideal that, that it's a good thing to get arrested. Now, uh, when, when mistakes are made, you have to take steps back and admit them and, uh, and change. I do think, though, that it's entirely possible to have movements engaging in quite significant property destruction and conf even confrontation with the police while maintaining collective discipline about how far the violence is going to go. One example is again, the uprising after the murder of George Floyd, where there was a very uh, widespread um, uh, um, recognition that we're not going to say assassinate cops with guns. And that's not because there are no guns to get hold of in the US, uh, it was because activists knew that this would be disastrous for the movement if we actually engaged in what Fox News could legitimately paint as terrorism. But you had a militant confrontation and a very fair degree of, of property destruction running through that entire uprising. But people did not kill police officers with guns. 
And that's not because it wasn't possible. It's because there was a collective discipline in the movement. And there are many other examples of that kind. So I, I don't really buy the idea that as soon as you engage in more militant tactics, you will immediately enter a spiral of uncontrollable violence. Uh, that can happen, but it does not have to happen. No, and I, I, I'm not saying that it will necessarily happen. I'm just no. saying that no. that it's a risk. And I, if I look at the history yeah. in Denmark, and I, I find it very hard to understand America in general. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I don't know, actually, I must say maybe, I, I don't know, uh, I, I don't know what's the history of this Black Lives Matter movement, what was successful and what wasn't successful uh, um, about it. So it's just difficult to, to, to discuss. Yeah. Um, but what I do worry about a lot and what I find on a very deep level disturbing today is that on the one hand, from the left, you, you don't think polarization is a bad thing. You don't think division is a bad thing. You want kind of a conflict that reflects the conflicts of interest in society. Yeah. But now it seems like the far right has stolen the, the division and the yeah. polarization yeah. And, and even the, the anger. So, so, so you must, with one hand, you must be against this division because they destroyed the institutions that we need in order to combat climate change. On the other hand, you cannot just be defending the status quo, the society as it is. But what I do worry about is that this very strong right wing movement that, that we see today, that they will resort to violence. And that's, mm -hmm. I think, for the left, an extremely difficult game to open to say, well, this kind of sabotage, it's okay for us, but it's not for them. You know, I'm just worried about the destructive factors that we would release on the other side. What do you think of this concern? Well, I mean, imagine that, imagine that people started putting super yachts on fire, for instance. Super yachts that are one of the most insane source of luxury emissions that you can find. So uh, sources of death, because emissions kill, that's ABC of climate science, for no good reason at all. You just want to flaunt your wealth with those crazy big super yachts. So if, if people started to burn super yachts, would that immediately make it seem legitimate to burn asylum centers, for instance, as far-right activists have been doing in Europe uh, quite regularly? I, I doubt it, to be honest, because I, I think it would be quite clear for people that there is no moral equivalence between the super yacht that we target and housing refugees in, in, a, in a center. I mean, the very act of targeting super yachts, going after rich people would signal that human needs should be front and center. So it's a good thing to take care of refugees because they have needs. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't see that, you know, because, uh, because, because fascists use a particular kind of political method to pursue their goals, we are by definition uh, excluded from using similar methods. I mean, there was a massive nausea march in Sweden against uh, uh, vaccines just the other day. Are we thereby to conclude that because the Nazis demonstrate, we shouldn't demonstrate because that <laughs> somehow legitim legitimizes, justifies their demonstration and so on and so forth. I mean, every virtually every kind of action can be made for different purposes. And what's important is how do they connect to these purposes and how do they articulate them? And the, the, But the, the problem that you're pointing to, which is entirely correct, 
is that the far right in Europe has been has become better at articulating the anger that you can find in society, including sometimes with very violent means that we shouldn't copy. I'm not saying that, but uh, but the left needs to uh, get ahead of the curve of the far right and be the force that expresses antagonism in society, including, of course, against the far right itself. I mean, the, the, I, I would I would say that when it comes to fighting against the far right, we have to accept that there is a polarity, there is an antagonism, and we need to fight the far right, not just, oh, we're all going to be friends. That's not how it's going to work out. When, when speaking about these climate actions and these demonstrations and these power struggles, I always find it hard to think what is the right historical parallel? Because yes. we haven't been, because the stakes here are so extremely high and they're high for, the, it's not, they're not high for us. They are a lot higher for our kids and, and, and grandkids. And this is at the heart of our economical system and the distribution of power and money. I tend to think that maybe the American Civil War, because that was also a battle between two different economic models. You know, it wasn't just about racism. It was about two different kinds of, of, of capitalism. Uh, what do you think would be, what is the historical parallel that we should go to in order to understand the movement then and the conflicts that we're in today? This is a very good question. And I honestly don't have a straightforward answer to it, precisely because, as you said, it's very difficult to find a proper uh, analog, a, a, a precedent to the crisis that we're in. Because, I mean, if you can, you can compare it with the American Civil War, and uh, it shares a lot of features, uh, some of which you pointed out, but climate change is not, does not rest on a system of holding a population defined as a race captive, as a, as a slave population. I mean, that's a very different thing from... Uh, fossil fuels being the, the foundation of our economy still. And it produces another kind of politics than, than what we're seeing in the climate crisis. So I don't, I don't expect us to see a war between two standing armies as between the US North and the US South fighting over the abolition of, uh, of fossil fuels. But I mean, who knows? But it's not, it's not what I see uh, happening uh, uh, right now uh, or, or in the very near future. Uh, I think we need to precisely because the whole complex of the climate crisis is so special, uh, juggle a lot of different historical analogs and experiences to try to make sense of our situation, because it's only history that we can try to draw lessons from. Uh, the, the, one, the one general lesson that I think holds across the board and for this situation as well is that we're not going to defeat the entrenched interests in the current order without uh, a great deal of struggle and confrontation and this has never just included absolute peacefully methods. It has always included something more. If we look at the, 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 the aspect I mentioned before that I just want to hear, I think I have two questions left for you, which is that at this point of, of history, you know, our struggles here in Europe, actually they don't matter if, if, if they don't reduce emissions in yeah, sure, Brazil sure. Or, 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 or in Indonesia. And, and in India, this new way of being internationalist, of engaging with the, with 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 people, how does that change the dynamic uh, of 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 the entire movement for you? That that you know we must have kind of activism and actions that are affecting Xi Jinping 
as well as our Danish Democratic Prime Minister. How do you see this uh, challenge? Well, if you if you take the question of China to begin with, because it's a very common uh, objection that well, what does it matter if you do anything here in Sweden or in the Germany or in the US, including blowing up pipelines, if China just continues as it does? Well, first of all, I live in Sweden. I I cannot contribute to climate activism inside China because that's not the country where I live. And uh, what we can do to stimulate climate activism in China is probably to escalate it in our own uh, countries, in our own territories and, and inspire it to spread. This is what happened with the rise of the climate movement in, the, in, in Europe in 2019 and had that kind of international diffusion effect. Uh, I, and of course, uh, Chinese emissions aren't just Chinese, they're very often produced in the process <laughs> of manufacturing goods that, that are imported to our countries. So uh, we have a very big role to play in, in Europe and the US in relation to the Chinese economy and other economies in the global south and so on and so forth. I mean, it's, it's from the West that the whole, the whole model of the fossil economy emerged. So our historically accumulated emissions are still much greater than, than China's. <clears throat> now, uh, but you're absolutely right that it's in the global south that these things will, will ultimately be determined. It's in the global south that the climate suffering is most intense and will be so for the foreseeable future. And it's in the global south that you have the greatest potential for emissions growth. Uh, I, just by as, a, as an aside, I just came home from a month in Egypt, the country I've spent time in uh, uh, over the past decade. And Egypt is going to house the next COP. And the way that Egypt is developing now is that it's a, a, an almost perfectly totalitarian dictatorship where the, the, the grasp of the military is virtually complete. There are no active oppositional forces. And the way that CISIS still sustains some popular support is by building, 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 constructing, constructing, constructing new cities, new highways, new shopping malls, all with the help of capital flowing in from Saudi Arabia and the rest of the Gulf. And by the way, the next COP next year will be held in the United Arab Emirates. This is a part of the world that is, I mean, the Middle East, where, where oil and gas are absolutely central to sustaining political dictatorship. And this is something we're going to have to talk about in the next two years because, because of the decision to, to locate the COPs to these particular places. Uh, uh, I, I, I hope to just give a very marginal contribution to the conversation in Egypt through my comrades there about how to sort of merge democratic activism in Egypt with climate activism. Uh, it's going to be extremely difficult to have any kind of demonstration or, or, or meeting or any kind of voicing dissent at a, a COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh in, in November. But we're going to try to stimulate the conversation in Egypt about coal and uh, automobility in Egypt, and of course, the relation to the oil and gas countries uh, in the Gulf. So yes, uh, these countries are more important than, than Denmark and Sweden. Yeah. Uh, one last question is, we had very, very strong climate movement before, before COVID. And it was like, and we had social unrest all over the world, you know, there was a kind of social mobilization. And I had the feeling that, you know, you had the, dark, the far right on the one side and you had social mo mo mobilization that was very broadly appealing in Chile and in Iraq, uh, everywhere. And it seems now we have this uh, shutdown. Yes. And, and, and I'm afraid that the shutdown killed the climate movement also yeah. because 
when you step out of the fight for a while and you just look at the facts, you say, well, we're not going to solve this. This is all about managing it. We're not going to win this battle. This is about how much we're we're, we're losing. What, what do you think COVID did to the climate uh, movement? You know, it was precisely that kind of disaster that you're outlining. Uh, and the, the, the climate movement in March, I mean, the climate movement in Europe, let's say it that way. In, in March, April 2020, suspended activities and uh, committed at least some kind of temporary suicide, put itself in a coma. And that was uh, catastrophic for the movement, of course. And I think that in hindsight, we can say that it was a mistake because the idea was based on the perception that we cannot have mass mobilization in the streets during a pandemic. It's just gonna exacerbate the situation. This was, it turned out, not entirely correct because you could have mass mobilization in the US. I mean, the, the Floyd uprising, again, was the largest uh, movement in US history in terms of how many people were on the streets without it exacerbating the pandemic because people took precautions and things like that. And you had movements in Belarus and in, in Poland and, and, and elsewhere. But Greta Thunberg and her colleagues in the leadership of the climate movement couldn't see this and didn't know this. I mean, I'm not blaming them because it was very hard to know this in March, April. Everyone was in a shock and just thought, oh, it's all about Corona. We're staying home. We're not going to do anything more. We post some pictures on the web and that's but it, it totally sapped the momentum that we had built up in 2019 and it, it, that was disastrous so the climate movement has been struggling ever since to try to regain some of that momentum and some of it has been regained but we're still very far from where we were in late 2019 early 2020 but i think that we have to assume that climate mobilization kicks in again and hopefully with an order of magnitude of growth because the problem is not going away. Uh, there's one thing we know for a certainty about the climate crisis, and that is, is that it's going to get worse. And hopefully, uh, if there's any rationality left in the world, that would trigger popular uh, reactions at some point. And I do think that on the other side of COVID, we will see social change, but social change is never what we expect it to be. But I think, I'm sure we will see change. It's just going to be different than we expected. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Thank you so much for your contribution to Reflections and taking your time with us tonight. We look forward to your next book. Thank you. Thank you, Rune. Thank you so much. That was great. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. Det var min samtale med Andreas Malm. I næste uge, der taler jeg med den amerikanske forfatter, videnskabsteoretiker og meget væsentlig intellektuelle Donna Haraway. Det er nogle årtier siden, at hun skrev Cyborg-manifestet, der for min generation blev en slags bibel til at genfortolke forholdet mellem mennesker og maskiner og blev en del af den måde, man forestillede sig den helt nye verden. Siden har hun foretaget adskillige radikale andre greb og insisteret på, at vi skal tænke sammenhængen mellem teknik, natur og menneske helt forfra, hvis vi skal, som hun siger, leve på en klode, der allerede er skadet. Det kan lyde en lille smule dystert, men det er ikke Donna Haraway, der er dyster, det er situationen, der er det. Og hvis man tænker med hende, så kommer man nogle steder hen, som overhovedet ikke er dystre, men hvor man faktisk ser klimakrisen som anledning til at skabe et bedre mere retfærdigt, mere balanceret og i sidste instans også mere fredeligt samfund end det, vi har i dag. 
Jeg håber, I vil lytte med igen i næste uge. Det er store spørgsmål, vi tumler med. Indimellem kan det føles, som om vi ikke kommer videre, men det gør vi faktisk. Det er små skridt stille og roligt fremad i den helt store bevægelse. Tak for nu.